0: I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back for a part two interview, Ms. Kari. Hammerschlag. She is Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program, and for the past eight years, Kari has led the organization's animal agriculture work, which aims to advance policies at the state, federal, and international levels to support a transition away from factory farming towards a healthier, more just, and sustainable food system. Ms. Hammerschlag also oversees the organization's climate-friendly school food initiative that aims to scale up plant-based and organic school meals using purchasing dollars to support local farmers and ranchers. And before joining Friends of the Earth, Ms. Hammerschlag worked as a senior analyst with the Environmental Working Group, and she focused there on the U.S. Farm Bill, GMOs, organic agriculture and conservation policy. She has extensively researched the links between food production and climate change. And prior to the Environmental Working Group, she worked as a sustainable food policy and fair trade consultant. She holds a master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley in Latin American Studies and City and Regional Planning. And she has worked on food and agriculture issues for more than three decades, ever since she first read Diet for a Small Planet. Welcome, Kari.
1: Thank you so much for that kind introduction,
0: Melinda. Well, after our interview last week, I realized that I needed to have you back on because we only touched on the surface of the interconnections between food, agriculture, and climate change. And so I wanted to take a deeper dive with you on that. I wanted to talk specifically about your great work with school food, but I wanted to also ask you more about how Diet for a Small Planet influenced your whole professional future. Well, it's a
1: funny story. You know, I went to the University of Vermont as an undergrad, and I read Diet for a Small Planet my second year there, and it really influenced me heavily. I changed my diet. I became a pescatarian, stopped eating meat, and I really was so inspired by that book that I started researching more about development issues and what I could do, and also Frances Morla Pay, the author of that book, I learned that she was at the Institute for Food and Development Policy, also known as Food First. And so right out of college, I applied to be an intern there, and i drove cross country as soon as I graduated and moved out to San Francisco and worked with Food First, the Institute for Food and Development Policy for a year and it was just one of the most educational years of my life. and it's so wonderful to see that Frances Moore is still a very, very strong advocate activist for these issues. She just produced her 50th anniversary version of Diet for a Small Planet with her daughter Anna Pay, who I also work with as a colleague on many different projects. so. That book has had such a big impact on me and so many people. And it's still as relevant today as it was 50 years ago.
0: Exactly. And we have an interview with Francis Moore LePay about that 50th edition, so I can provide a link to that, too, for our listeners. Well, Kari, I was really impressed with some of the work the Friends of the Earth has been doing with regard to climate change and the connection between food and agriculture. And I know that you have published a couple of articles The most recent one we spoke about last week that was published by Food Tank, and it had to do with the banking systems, the international banking industries that fund a lot of these industrial farms, and I had no idea. And at the same time that the multinational development banks are funding industrial livestock operations, they are pledging to align with the Paris Climate Agreement and the International Panel on Climate Change and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm thinking there's a big disconnect there. And I thought maybe what we should do today is take a little bit of a deeper dive into the relationship between agriculture and climate change. So why don't we start with you explaining some of the basic concepts. How does agriculture or how we produce our food, impact climate change?
1: So animal agriculture, factory farms, are actually a leading driver of the climate crisis. But you wouldn't know about that because all the focus too often is on the energy sector. It's not on agriculture. And yet, according to many, many studies, the food system accounts for About a third, as high as 36% of all greenhouse gas emissions are attributed back to our food system. And one of the reasons you don't hear about it that much is because it's kind of broken down into lots of different categories. So, for example, when you don't hear about the pesticide production, fertilizer production, that is not included in agriculture, that's included in industry. So the numbers that you read from the EPA, for example, aren't always the most accurate. But nevertheless, agriculture is a huge source and animal agriculture in particular. And the reason for that has to do with the methane that's produced from animal agriculture. 37% of all methane in the U.S. comes from agriculture. And methane is, of course, a supercharged greenhouse gas that is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And so we know that curbing methane emissions is the fastest way to slow global warming and avoid overshooting this 1.5 degrees Celsius target that we have. So we really need to focus on methane. But it's not just the methane, of course, in agriculture. It's feed production. So when you look at particularly chicken and pigs, hogs, and dairy, and beef as well, it's a lot of the emissions are coming from feed production, which are grown with massive amounts of energy-intensive inputs, the chemical fertilizer, the pesticides, the irrigated water, the nitrous oxide emissions that arise from the fertilizer applications on these crops, which generate, and nitrous oxide is 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. So that's a huge impact as well. And then, of course, there's the land use changes. So that in Latin America, for example, 70% of deforestation is caused by cattle grazing, and that another like 14% from feed and crop production. And that's, that's a huge climate impact from deforestation. And in the US, there's also a lot of emissions that come from plowing up the land and plowing the native prairie that is now covered and blanketed in these massive monoculture crops. So that's another climate impact, because when you convert this land, large amounts of carbon from the soil are released into the atmosphere. And so I often tell people that the destruction of these grasslands, these are carbon-rich grasslands, wetlands and shrublands all over a lot of parts of America. And this destruction is really, it's like our Amazon rainforest. You know, we think about the Amazon rainforest and all the impacts of deforestation there. And we don't think much about the clearing of land here in the U.S., but that's a big impact as well.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because we do hear about grasslands being this big opportunity to be a carbon sink. And to the untrained eye, if you drive through areas that are big corn and soy production areas, the Midwest being one, you see a lot of green. You know, you see the corn and the soy in the summer and everything's green and it looks great. And you wouldn't know that that was actually creating a negative impact with regard to climate. So there's the issue of the pesticides and the fertilizers as well as the heavy equipment that's used. What else should we be thinking about in terms of climate change when we think about these big monocropping systems? Well,
1: the water footprint is huge. So animal foods in particular use far more water, and that's because they are reliant on crops. So cattle, for example, it takes 10 pounds of grain just to produce one pound of meat. So, and there's a lot of water, irrigated water, that goes into producing the grain. And That is something that I think a lot of folks don't think about. You know, in California, I live in California, and we are in a really serious drought. And yet the state continues to build massive slaughterhouses and continues to subsidize the dairy industry, which are using a lot of water in the feed, the alfalfa that is fed to the dairy cows. And so there's a huge impact there. It's not just producing the emissions that are causing global warming and Climate chaos is also just depleting the water resources that are so fundamental to being able to feed people in the future. So that's a big, big issue.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting. In one of the recent reports that you did for Food Tank, you write that industrial scale production will dramatically increase, not reduce, emissions, including methane, and that a U.S. Environmental Protection Agency report documents high methane emissions from large-scale confined pig operations that liquefy their manure, increasing by 44% between 1990 and 2010. So I think a lot of times we think about methane production, we think about cattle, but I don't think we're also factoring in hog and poultry operations as well.
1: That is true. That is right. You hear a lot about cattle, and you don't hear the liquid manure systems that are generating a lot of the methane on hog farms and chicken. But the truth is that the bigger methane emissions are coming from enteric fermentation, which is the digestive process of ruminant animals, and that is the much larger methane. It's a bigger percentage of overall methane emissions. And so in terms of looking at the data, the only way that we're going to really truly reduce emissions from methane emissions from animals is to scale back their production and not consume so many animals, which is absolutely in alignment with the dietary guidelines and the need to consume more fiber-rich fruits, nuts, vegetables, legumes, etc. We need to consume more healthy plant-based food and fewer animals, and in that sense, will help to reduce the methane emissions. And But unfortunately, in our country, it's really all about voluntary approaches. And I just don't see how we're going to get to the methane reduction numbers that we need to really save the planet without actually saying we are just producing too many animals. And then, of course, there's so many other negative impacts associated with the way that we produce animals. It's not just the methane It's just that's one issue that we really need to address if we want to have any chance of having a livable planet.
0: Right. Kari, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Kari Hammerschlag, Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program. And I would be remiss if I did not mention how much respect I have for the work of Friends of the Earth and their food and agriculture program specifically. And I just want to remind our listeners that there are three fundamental shifts that Friends of the Earth is working toward. One is to switch from toxic and chemical-intensive to healthy and ecologically regenerative. Another is to switch from corporate-controlled to democratically-governed. And third, from a system that embodies the deepest inequities in our society to one that advances justice and fulfills the needs of all eaters now and in the future. And I believe you are working on a new report that is going to look specifically at farming for the future. And I'm sure that is going to have a huge climate focus. I think that's the most urgent issue that we are facing today and the fact that all of us I think need to have a much stronger understanding of the role of food and agriculture and how it impacts climate change. Is that what Farming for the Future will be tackling?
1: Oh yes several years ago we published a document called farming for the future how we need agroecological organic and agroecological farming to feed the world to make the really make the case that we often hear that we need industrial agriculture to feed the world but in reality it's industrial agriculture that is depleting and degrading the very resources that we need to feed future generations it's depleting the water it's poisoning, depleting, and degrading the water with poisonous pesticides and fertilizers. It's using a lot of the resources that we need, and it's not managing them in a way that will allow us to produce food in the future. So so that report really digs into that and and uses a lot of the documents, a lot of academic studies, including a lot of reports that have been generated by the United Nations to talk about why we need agroecological approaches to feed the world, which are much more sustainable and which actually manage resources in a way that will reduce climate impacts and protect water, protect our wildlife, protect our pollinators, um, and also produce healthy food for people. You know, that's what we need. And so that's what that report is about.
0: So that was published in 2016. Is there going to be an updated version of that?
1: There's not an updated version of that. There will be an updated version of spinning food coming out that's going to focus more on pesticide issues. That will be out pretty soon.
0: All right. I want to bring forth some work that you did. This was a report titled Shrinking the Carbon and Water Footprint of School Food, a Recipe for Combating Climate Change, And this was a pilot analysis of the Oakland Unified School District's food programs. Tell me how you worked with the school system to have a more climate-friendly menu.
1: So this is our climate-friendly school food initiative, which I'm so excited about. Every year in our country, we serve 7 billion meals to students. That's a lot of food. And so it's a lot of impact, both in terms of health and climate and environment. And right now, about 95% of those meals contain significant amounts of industrially produced meat and dairy. And so we are working both on the policy front, but also with school districts across California to help them shift their menus towards more plant-based and organic food. And We're seeing that there is increasing demand for this from the students. So we're working with students in a number of different school districts that are like organizing campaigns on their campuses and asking their school food directors to serve more plant based food. They realize that this is the food for the future in terms of helping to reduce climate impacts. And also, many students are also very concerned about animal welfare issues and the cruelty, the intolerable cruelty to animals on factory farms, which is frankly, where 95% of our food comes from these factory farms, also known as CAFOs, where we have tens of thousands of animals that are raised in these inhumane conditions and in confined buildings and, and causing lots of pollution, waste that pollutes our air, water, and soil, et cetera. And so there's a lot of interest in this. And we have a, a team in California that's working with school districts and we worked with Oakland Unified School District to map out how they could significantly shrink their carbon footprint by shifting a portion of their meals towards plant-based food away from meat and dairy menu items. And they really achieved a pretty significant reduction through those changes on their menu that we documented in that report.
0: Yes. And you've got a great graphic that shows that over two years, the Oakland Unified School District was able to save $42,000 just by making these climate-friendly shifts. So I am curious to know, were there complaints from the faculty and the students that there wasn't as much meat? Or were you able to purchase more meat from local farmers? How did this work?
1: Actually, we were. This is the coolest thing about this program. Not only did they save $42,000, they saved 42 million gallons of water, and they reduced their carbon footprint by 14%, which is like the equivalent of planting, say, 15,000 trees or driving 1.5 million fewer miles. So it was a lot of reduction from their shift on the menu because we actually did a full-on carbon footprint analysis of all their menu from across two years. So that was a big undertaking. But no, there was not a pushback from students on this. What they did was, in different ways, they were able to purchase more local organic meat, actually, from a wonderful company called Mindful Meats that works with dairies and sources the meat from dairy cows. And they were able to also offer what we call forward menu items. So instead of using 100% beef in their chili, they would half the amount of beef in the chili and mix that with beans. And they had different strategies that allowed them to reduce their meat and dairy. And importantly, they did a lot of taste tests to understand what are the dishes that the students like the best, and they put those on the menu They also did a lot of work with the folks serving the food to get them excited about it so they could promote it with the kids. But it's a great example of just the tremendous benefit to the planet that these school districts can have when they shift their menu items.
0: So is this ready to be rolled out as a national model?
1: Absolutely, We recently, with the support of several foundations, we were able to put out a small micro-grant program for school districts to get a little bit of support from us to help them implement some new menu items around plant-based. And we got overwhelming support, like a lot of applications from school districts that wanted to make changes and really just needed a little bit of support. And we're working with about 50 school districts across California. And it's really just a matter of resources to be able to provide the support to school districts across the country. There's a lot of limitations right now at the policy level for school districts to make this shift. And we're also working to get legislation in Washington to create a pilot grant program to support school districts with the funding that they need to serve more plant-based meals. And this is called the Healthy Future Students and Earth Act. H.R. 4108. For listeners that are interested in supporting this kind of legislation, it would be great if you could check to see if your representative is supporting it. It's H.R. 4108 and it's the Healthy Future Students in Earth Act. So that's been something that we've been organizing with a whole coalition around and are really hoping that we can get more funding supported for this at the national level. And the USDA also just announced a new program, a healthy food incentives program. And so we're hoping to get more support through that program for plant based meals in schools. And that's something that we're also, we're working towards right now. It's just all the policies and so much of the funding are just really giving preference to heavy meat and dairy menus, like all the subsidies in the USDA foods program, for example, 80% of that program is going to meat and dairy products. And that's something that they give away to school districts in a very subsidized way. And it creates incentives for school districts to buy that kind of food.
0: Well, I think it's important for children to recognize that what we eat affects the climate, and how we produce our food affects the climate, Are there any other issues that you would want people to know about these important connections that you think we might not be aware of?
1: I think the other big issue that people don't realize is the land use in our country. There's more than a billion acres of land in food production in the U.S., and 80% of that land is going towards meat production, and that is a huge footprint. I mean, that's actually 40% of our entire land base in the U.S. that is going for meat production. And the vast majority of that is for grazing, and you can graze sustainably, and we support good, solid, regenerative agriculture farming that is done well, but most grazing is not. And most grazing is poorly managed, and it's causing major degradation to our soils and our air, our water, biodiversity, et cetera. And so I'd say that, you know, I think people don't realize just the huge, huge impact. And then, of course, there's the other part of our meat. So that's the animals, and that's like on the land. The other big part of our meat production system are the slaughterhouses, where I think it's 8, 10, 9 billion animals are slaughtered every year. A lot of animals, and there's a tremendous amount of water pollution that come from that, as well as very poor working conditions. There is a lot of exploitation of workers in this industry, and of course, many of those workers are people of color, low-income, and lack the ability to really organize and demand higher wages and better worker protection. So we heard about a lot of really serious issues during the COVID. Well, we're still in COVID, but there were a lot of the meat industry basically worked with the Trump administration to To basically shut down any government mandated safety of these workers. And we saw sadly, you know, a lot of deaths of workers from meatpacking plants. And there just continues to be a lot of challenging health and safety work issues. And sadly, our own government is supporting the industry to speed up the lines with the kill lines for the animals, which really hurts the, the workers, makes really is creating very difficult worker conditions and There's so many, many impacts of the way that we grow food and animals in particular in this
0: country. Well, I think that the Friends of the Earth does a really good job in showing how all of these different pieces come together and how they're connected. I think that with regard to climate, you mentioned plant-based and working with the schools and having more plant-based entrees. So in a dish of chili, for example, you might use half of the meat But then you'd replace that with a very high-protein plant-based food, beans, which is also a really great food source for our gut microbes. But I think that people may be confused with that plant-based halo, and we're seeing all of these highly processed alternative meat products. And I'm not convinced that those are better for the planet than meat or livestock that is truly raised in a regenerative fashion. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, I think it really depends on what, I think There, I think there's a, a range of differences across different plant-based products, you know, and I, I think we can't make a blanket statement about that, but I, and I think we need to get a lot more data about the full life cycle impact of different kinds of plant-based, processed plant-based foods. There's no doubt that the unprocessed Plant-based high-protein foods like lentils and all kinds of beans, legumes is really the best source of protein in terms of for the planet. It's also great because it actually fixes, legumes fix their own nitrogen, so that reduces the need for chemical fertilizers. And then as you said, you know, it's super rich in fiber and really good for your gut microbe, your microbiome. Which students are not getting enough fiber? Like fiber, we have a fiber crisis in this country. Yes, and we so do. I think plant-based. I mean, we need to talk about that. It's a really, it's just such an important issue, and and so plants are such a solution for that. But in terms of the climate footprint, I mean, I, we have done certain. There's, I think, depending on um, on what the process is for producing these plant-based alternatives, they still do have a much lower footprint. Then even the better meat, most likely, unless there are exceptions where you have some farms where they're raising animals, where they're truly sequestering a lot of carbon through their land management practices that would counteract the big methane emissions from enteric fermentation, which is, you know, the methane that comes from animal digestive process, which is very high. And because of that methane emissions, it's very uh, rare that you're going to Find that these systems of agriculture, the animal-based systems, are going to have a lower footprint. There, there are except there will be exceptions, but the mostly plant-based are going to be lower on the in terms of climate emissions. They are going to be lower, but it does depend because there are like the advanced, like the energy-intensive. You know, we don't know much about the the biotech-based plant-based production systems are very energy-intensive. We don't know much. We don't have a lot of data about how they're growing the feedstock for those systems, the fermentation systems. Like there's a lot we don't know about how those systems are being. There's not a lot of transparency right now about that. So we we don't know exactly, but we do know about beans, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Kari, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Kari Hammerschlag. She is Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program, and I will provide a link to the report titled Farming for the Future, or organic and agroecological solutions to feed the world as well as shrinking the carbon and water footprint of school food, a recipe for combating climate change. Thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.